In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. When we think of the Eighth Commandment, what should generally be on our mind is about how God tells us not to talk about people behind their back. This is called gossip. It is a sin. I would say, obviously, it is remarkable what is not obvious. But it is a sin to talk about other people behind their back. The problem is, of course, everybody does it. Sometimes it's really bad. Sometimes it's not all that harmful. Sometimes when you talk about people, when they're not there, you're really, and you know I'm right, and I know I'm right, you're really only trying to talk about the issue, the important thing, the event, the thing that needs to be judged and considered and evaluated. And you're only talking about the people because you're forced to, they're part of it, and you really don't mean anything by it. Well, this is an important distinction. And yet, even this, we hardly accomplish without sin. This is very important to consider. We are more sinful than we will ever know until we are finally freed from our bodies of death. And it will be a wonderful feeling. Like when you go to the chiropractor and you don't even know what pain you were in until you're finally out of it. Oh, what a wonderful day it will be. For now we must learn about our sin so that we might learn to, de- to repent of it. Even when we think we have rationalized away any sin in what we discuss, we know, and we better know, that there are sins in our hearts that didn't completely show themselves. We hide them. We act concerned when we talk about other people. We mention them because we're, we're worried about them. And we don't mean to judge, we're just... Well, we have our excuses. And the only one who denies any of this is a liar. We're all guilty of this. And God condemns our sin. God sees the heart. He sees through all the excuses. So before we consider the motives of other people and discuss them, in order to get to the bottom of the issue, of course, we should consider our own motives. That's what we'll be considering this evening. As we judge other people's motives, we must judge our own. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. What does this mean? We should fear and love God that we may not deceitfully belie, betray, slander, nor defame our neighbor, but defend him, speak well of him, and put the best construction on everything. The Eighth Commandment explicitly forbids lying about other people. Now, specifically and strictly speaking, it is a civil ordinance that condemns perjuring oneself under oath. When you are called upon to tell the truth, you must speak only what is true. Once again, another thing that is very obvious. Generally speaking, the commandment extends outside the courtrooms of ancient Israel and forbids us today from saying things to other people about other people without proof or evidence anywhere, especially when we know it's not true, whether we're under oath or not, because we're always under oath. 
Jesus tells us to let our yes be yes and our no be no. And why? It's because we are always under oath to tell the truth. We're Christians. We are members of one another. Our head is Christ, who is the truth. He is our oath, as it were. We are under him. We are under his grace. We especially hold this commandment, therefore, very, very dear, because it teaches us how to live together as Christians. We all pay the same vows. We are all under the same oath to hear, confess, and speak the same truth, and to drink from the same cup of salvation. To lie about a fellow believer is to lie about Christ. It does unspeakable harm to the body of Christ. Jesus takes his, how his members are treated very personally. So the Eighth Commandment commands us not to lie about others. Well, what a wicked thing to do, though, right? I mean, just saying it out loud, it's so obvious. To say what is false about somebody when you know it is false? Goodness gracious, Christians can't do this. Christians don't do this. As we learned with crystal clarity last week, this literally kills. Only unbelievers do this, and that's a fact. Slander is what the devil does. Jesus says the devil was a murderer from the beginning. He murders by lying. The name Satan means accuser, slanderer. Lying about people, especially when you know you're lying, is so obviously demonic. Such sins should not even be named among us. And yet, in Ephesians 4, St. Paul tells us, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Thus also recalling what we heard from 1 Corinthians 12. So telling Christians, though, to put away lying sounds almost as redundant and unnecessary as telling us to put away kicking babies. It's just too obvious. Which of us needs to be told not to do something so wicked? But lying is not always so crass or easily recognized. And that's the point. Notice that St. Paul doesn't just tell us here not to lie about one another. That indeed would be almost too obvious to remind us not to do but no, he tells us not to lie, to remove falsehood in general. Just as we should not lie about others, we also should not be so quick to believe lies about others. And furthermore, as we consider, we should not lie to ourselves. We lie to ourselves when we imagine that we understand more than we do about others and about what motives they had, etc., etc., not having the whole truth might just be the same as having nothing more than a lie. Half-truths certainly do no less damage than outright lies. Indeed, a little truth adds a lot to the power of a lie to do harm. Ignoring the context of what somebody said or did is very often the difference between knowing the truth about someone and believing a lie about someone, repeating either out loud or in your own mind what you do not know for sure about somebody else is just as much bearing false witness against your neighbor as the outright lying that the devil does. It is a terrible sin. If you don't know the whole truth, then you have no truth to tell. But then who can ever really know the whole truth? I mean, if we're going to extend what we mean by lying and slander so broadly as to put us all under that category that I that I said was obviously wrong and demonic, well then, how can we 
ever really avoid it? Are we to investigate everything and make no judgment ever? Or have no emotional response to anything ever until we get to the bottom of every context and every circumstance and sift through everything that can be known about anything ever just in order to avoid untruth? Because technically, you don't know. Well, obviously, this isn't the case. It's impossible. So often, we see the Eighth Commandment appealed to by scoffers in this way in order to silence, rebuke, and correction, to shame any justifiable outrage to open sin. If you've spent five minutes on Facebook, you'll know this. People will accuse anyone of breaking the Eighth Commandment if they show the slightest concern for some sin that somebody is clearly committing. You don't know the whole story. Well, unless I'm mistaken, I think I know enough. Oh, how the Eighth Commandment is abused. By silencing, correction, and rebuke in the name of the Eighth Commandment, by doing this is to make a mockery of the Eighth Commandment. It's to make a mockery of what God intends to protect that belongs to your neighbor. You don't need to get to the bottom of everything when you see sin and disapprove. What we must do, however, is to put the best construction on everything. And this is what we must consider today. What does this mean? Of course it's hard. But it requires of you more than a better understanding of the law. To put the best instruction on others requires from you a better understanding of the gospel itself. So keep this in mind as we continue. We put the best construction on each other, not by ignoring what is obvious. We put the best instruction on each other by making it our chief goal to promote reconciliation. To restore one another in a spirit of gentleness considering ourselves, lest we also be tempted. If there's clear sin, correct it, rebuke it. We do so in order to bring brothers and sisters to repentance. But if there's no clear sin, if we don't know the whole story, we must do one of two things, and only one of two things. We either seek from the one we're concerned about what he did and why he did it, or if it doesn't rise to that occasion, because that would be kind of awkward, we bury it, forget it, and assume the best. St. Paul illustrates this as he continues in Ephesians 4, what I quoted a little bit ago about how he says not to lie, put away lying, speak the truth, and that we're members of each other. He adds immediately these words, and so teaches us how to do what he tells us to do. He says, be angry, and do not sin. Do not, do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. So there is such a thing as getting angry and not sinning. That's a relief, huh? Well, there is such a thing as righteous anger. There is. False doctrine should make us mad. It should elicit some sort of emotional response. When you hear false things said about Jesus, your Savior, right? Jesus got mad when he overthrew the Jews' money tables in the temple. Did he not put the best construction on them? Hardly can we read such a chapter as Matthew 23 with all the woes to the scribes and Pharisees, or much of what the prophets have written without imagining quite the righteous rage being expressed by God, our merciful Savior. Jesus teaches us righteous anger. He exhibits it. He justifies it. 
And righteous anger can last. It can last and should last until we die. And it's still righteous. What makes righteous anger righteous isn't that it expires by the time the sun goes down. No. We should be angry at sin and cruelty and false doctrine every night and every day and when we wake up in the middle of the night to get a drink of water. So Paul, who quotes the psalmist here, is not speaking of some category of, or type of anger, you know, the sort that's righteous. Well, there is such a kind of anger that is righteous and not sinful, but that's not what he's talking about. He's not commenting on righteous anger as a sort of anger that is good, the kind you should have. The kind that you know you have if you're right. No. He's telling us how to be angry when we are angry, whether we should be or not, because we do get angry. And sometimes you don't know whether you should have been angry or not until much later. There's no avoiding it. What he's telling us is extremely practical. He's teaching us how to deal with this anger so that we might learn to respond to what makes us angry without persisting in sin. And how do we do that? By putting the best instruction on one another. That is how we avoid resting in our anger, making our bed in it, coddling and getting cozy in it. We are to be angry at sin, not so that we can stay angry at sinners, not so that we can determine whether we're right to be angry. No. We are to be angry at sin so that we might learn to correct, help, and forgive those who sin. In other words, we are to speak the truth with one another. Because truth be told, we sinners tend to make one another angry from time to time. We hurt one another. We're selfish. Every eye expects the foot to see, and every hand expects the eye to grab and hold. We're such fools. Well, what do we expect? We're sinners who gather to receive forgiveness for our sins. Is it so beyond the pale that we would end up sinning against each other? We can pretty well expect to cross one another and annoy one another from time to time. The goal, however, is not to imagine away every cause to get upset. That's not what putting the best construction on everything means. The goal is how to manage this anger in such a way that we might be reconciled to each other. That we might consider our motives, whether to establish our own righteousness or to cover our brother with the righteousness of Christ. And we must do that long before we ever try to establish anyone else's motives. In order to seek reconciliation, we assume the best motives when dealing with those who might have done us wrong. We assume the best by hoping to win them and not just be right. And this is what it means not to let the sun go down on your wrath. Generally speaking, it's good practice and advice for husband and wife never to go to bed mad at each other, right? But the Holy Spirit is teaching us something much more than how to set a timetable for how long we can remain miffed. He's teaching us what goal to have towards one another, what motive. He's appealing to the motive of God towards you. Our goal is peace. Our goal is truth and honesty and trust. Our goal is to recognize one another as members of the body of Christ. Our goal is to be reconciled with those who hurt us. We are members of one another. We have different strengths, we know. We have different weaknesses, too. We must consider ourselves, lest we also are tempted. We must seek peace. We must pursue it.
In order to do that, we must put the best construction on the motives of what we see other people say and do. How does this, how is this done? Does it mean that whenever somebody annoys us, we have to calmly confront our brother and sister and show him his sin? Show him or her how we've been offended? We'll consider. Let's not make a mockery of reconciliation. Let's not look at every offense as something that needs to be addressed. Let's make allowances for one another. Something harder but more conducive to peace is advised and indeed commanded by our Lord. Instead of tabulating everything and getting to the bottom of everything in the name of seeking the truth, what does the commandment say? Put the best instruction on everything. Explain everything in the most charitable way. Assume the best. This saves time. It saves energy. It avoids needless haranguing and adjudication about who did what and why. Not everything that somebody said or did is cause for you to confront him and get to the bottom of why he did what he did. Just assume the best. Don't assume motives are bad. Don't assume it's a pattern of behavior. Rather than assuming malice in another, assume instead at worst maybe thoughtlessness, carelessness, even stupidity. Assume the best. But you know what they say about those who assume. It makes an ass out of you and me. Well, we don't like looking like asses. We don't like having egg on our faces. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on you. Shame on me, fool me twice, I messed it up. And I was actually thinking of making fun of George W. Bush. Remember when he messed it up? His was worse. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I'm not going to get fooled again. Sometimes it feels like putting the best instruction on somebody and assuming only good motives means that you have to pretend to be an idiot, to be blind. Like it's not obvious. Sometimes somebody says something rude and inasmuch as you're no fool, you know perfectly well what you meant by it and that it was meant to be mean and hurtful. Come on, I'm not a fool. I'm not an ass. Now certainly putting the best instruction and assuming the right motives doesn't require you to put your head in the sand. You don't put your head in the sand, but you lift your head to heaven. And you put your neighbor's sins in the sand where they've been buried. If the best construction is unavoidably still pretty bad, then you have two choices. You either speak to the person and let him or her know what he or she did to hurt you, or you bury it. You assume the best, and you look like an ass. And you find great honor in being an ass. Because it was a lowly ass who carried our Lord Jesus to Jerusalem to die to stake his entire reputation, to bear your lies, your sin, your slander, every lie you've said about another, every lie you've said in your heart to justify what you know perfectly well is wrong. And he staked the very honor of his own holy life, the honor of his everlasting name, to save those who were perishing. 
and who deserve to die with their own bad name. He came to put the best construction on us and he saw the worst. And he saw what he would willingly bear in order to save us and give us a name and share it with him that is above every name. The name of the Lord is our savior. The name, the Lord is our righteousness. And there we see where he suffers all righteous wrath to satisfy it for all time. That he wins his brothers and sisters. He washes us clean. He bears all our sin and lies and he adorns us with truth and he gives us truth to speak with one another. And the greatest of these truth is the truth that we can be hopeful when we confront one another. The best construction you can put on me if I sin against you is that I might well be sorry if I have done you wrong. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And the angels rejoice. That's the best instruction. It's not just figuring out what happened. It is being willing to look like an ass, but one that brings Jesus to an erring brother or sister who needs Jesus brought to him, no matter how much of an idiot it makes you look like if you end up being wrong. But if you bring Jesus to those who need to be reconciled to you, you cannot be wrong. Jesus was not wrong to stake his reputation and good name on your salvation. And we do well now, forever, to assume the best in one another, to protect each other's reputation, and to do so all for joy that we are clothed in the good name of our Lord Jesus, who continues to have mercy on us and to appeal for us before the throne of God in heaven until we are freed from this mortal body and brought to him in paradise. In Jesus' name, amen. peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus unto eternal life.